You are listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast out of Wesley Seminary at Iwoo. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Assistant Professor of Pastoral Care. Who do you have trouble having empathy for? Undoubtedly, there are people in our lives that we are fairly easy to be empathic with, that we kind of get where they're coming from. Maybe their story resembles ours a little bit. Uh, but our guest today has written on the topic of having empathy for those people that I think are pretty tough for us to have empathy for. Uh, they're not the kinds of people that we have empathy for, and they're not really typological people anyways. They are characters from our scripture. Among those people that he says we should have empathy for include Jezebel and Delilah and Cain, and ultimately that ultimate bad guy, the devil. Uh, joining us today is the author of Empathy for the Devil, Finding Ourselves in the Villains of the Bible. It's J.R. Foresteros and a very special uh, co-guest, we could call it today, Wesley Seminary's very own Dr. Brandon Hancock. So welcome, J.R. Welcome, Brandon. Thank Howdy. you so much. So let's start out, Jr. just by inviting you share a little bit with our listeners, kind of a little bit about your story, and then what brought you to writing Empathy for the Devil? Sure. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on, and thanks for bringing Brandon on. Uh, Brandon and I don't get to hang out nearly as much as I wish, so this is uh, an extra special treat. Um, so I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church in uh, like from the day I was born pretty much uh, I was I was in church and uh, I felt a call to ministry pretty early on I was that kid that like argued with my science teachers even the Christian ones and all that kind of stuff in my public school education uh, uh, just like that real obnoxious aggressive like youth group kid that was me uh, and so I, when I received my call to ministry, I went to a private Southern Baptist university down in Southwest Missouri. Uh, and that, that was actually where I first sort of was introduced to the really, I guess, introduced to denominationalism. When I was in high school, I had a, we had a little Bible study that met before school and we had, you know, Lutherans and Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists and all kinds of different stuff. And I don't know why, but it never occurred to us to ask what the differences in our denominations were. Like we all basically just focused on reading scripture together and praying together, which is beautiful in its own way. But also when I went to a Southern Baptist university was the first time people said, you know, we believe this or do this because we're Baptists. And I was like, oh, I, mm, I don't know if I agree with that or not. Like, you know, I <laughs> Like I just never been presented with that. My my, and again, I think mostly for the good. My church, uh, the church in which I was raised, was never like a hardline denominational kind of a thing, which has really shaped me moving forward. Uh, now I'm a part of the Church of the Nazarene, so you know, sibling denomination with you Wesleyans. And uh, I, as much as I I love my denomination, I you know I, I chose this one unlike Southern Baptist, which I was raised in. Uh, but but I still try to be very ecumenical in the way I approach you know connecting with other ministers in my community or certainly the the church that we have. While we are proudly and unapologetically Nazarene, we try not to be Nazarene in such a way that it's alienating towards people that might um, not know what that means or might believe differently from us when they come to worship with us. Uh, so. When I went to uh, 
when I did grad school, I went to the University of Missouri Columbia, which is a state university, so non-confessional institution. And I, I studied religion there for my master's work, which was really formative for me because it, it invited me to look at religion in a, for, with a different set of tools. Uh, usually the, the analogy that I used to think of is that my, my undergraduate theology degree gave me a particular set of tools that I continue to find very useful. But uh, my state university gave me a completely different toolbox with a completely different set of tools that I can use to look at religion. And so I, I really enjoy getting to kind of play with both of those sets of tools when I preach or teach or engage. And I think it was while I was in grad school, I was working at a Baptist student union at the University of Missouri, and I began teaching these uh, classes that I called paradigm shifts, which were uh, designed for college students to help them ask questions about their faith and about beliefs that they might have always taken for granted. And, you know, we, we tried to position them as uh, places of conversation. And when, when I first started teaching them, they were really lecture oriented. And I found uh, I met a lot of resistance from students. And uh, I couldn't understand why, because I, I felt like the things that I was teaching were, were really liberating. There were you know, ways that I had come to have a deeper faith. Uh, and so I spent some time you know, in prayer and consideration of what was missing from these teaching experiences. And I realized that the way I was teaching was you know, positioning myself as an authority where I was coming in and kicking over all of their sacred sandcastles. And so that was why they were getting hostile and getting defensive. And, and so I, I changed my teaching strategy to be something that was a lot more conversational and a lot more of something where I was inviting them to consider scripture with me. And I, I share all of that because you asked, you know, where was the beginning of my journey towards writing this book on empathy? And I think in a lot of ways it began there because it was the first time that I really sat down and figured out why do I have such a difficult time communicating with someone that doesn't see this issue the same way that I do. And what I came to understand was that I was lacking an understanding of them, where they are, uh, what brought them to the beliefs that they have. And when I practiced more understanding and then designed my lessons around them and where they are and who they are, they became much more fruitful, both for me as a teacher and for them as a student. And, and so that really, uh, that was early in my ministry career. Like, you know, we're talking like first two, three, four years that I was a minister. And that really changed everything. It, when I got into full-time preaching, that continued to shape even the philosophical approach with which I sat down to write a sermon, you know, that, that I was always trying to put myself in the minds of the people who would be hearing the message and trying to understand where they, where they entered into thinking about whatever good news we're preaching that particular week. Uh, and then it certainly as our, as our political landscape and our cultural landscape has gotten more and more and more divisive, it's changed how I engage in those kinds of conversations with people that are across an issue or across the political aisle from me on, you know, cherry pick the issue you want to fight about, right? Um, trying to say, before I can disagree with this person, I need to make sure that I understand them. I need to make sure that we're even talking about the same issue because so often we talk past each other. And so, you know, when I, when I sat down to, to work on a book, uh, I was trying on at a high level to think about how can, how can I invite people to practice 
empathizing with someone that they disagree with because empathy does not require me to agree with uh, the person that I'm practicing empathy towards. It doesn't require that I condone what they do, certainly not celebrate or apologize for what they do. It's just understanding why they are who they are, why they believe what they believe, how they got to where they, they are. And so uh, I had preached uh, a couple of years before I, I really started working on the book in earnest, I had preached a sermon on Herod and I had done a lot of this kind of work, uh, which, which actually all grew from a trip I took to the Holy Land. Because if you go to the Holy Land and tour around, you run into like a hundred different things Herod built. And it was the first time he became a little more real for me. Like I remember when we went to the Masada, you go up on top of the Masada and you see the remnants of Herod's palace, which the palace that he built on the Masada was meant to be his like palace of last resort. If Rome and Israel and everyone turned against him and everyone was trying to kill him, this is where he was going to go like hide out and hole up. And it's in the middle of the desert. It's just like this terrible, terrible environment, like super hot and miserable. And there's a swimming pool that he built on the top of this mesa in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, what, like what kind of person would build a swimming pool in his like palace of last resort in a place where it's like the least convenient place you can imagine to put a swimming pool. Uh, it just made me laugh and it made me look at Herod in a new light. And so then when I began to, to research this sermon on Herod, I really went into trying to like flesh out who he was and what his mindset was, particularly when it came to the thing that we have villainized him for mostly, which is ordering the deaths of the infants of Bethlehem at, in the Christmas story in Matthew. And so I preached that sermon and, you know, that was like the second week of Advent ish. Cause you don't want to, you know, you don't want to, it's never like a good time to preach about killing babies, but certainly like the further you can get that from Christmas, the better for most people. So we did it the second week of Advent and uh, it was like January and February congregants were still coming up to me and saying, I can't quit thinking about Herod. I'm finding myself haunted by how much of myself I see in him. Uh, and, and so they were like in, in really good ways. They were, they were really bothered by this, this sermon. And again, as a pastor, if people remember your sermon on Tuesday, like that's usually cause for celebration. And this was like months later, people were still processing what they'd heard. So I knew that this, this sort of empathetic approach to some of these biblical villains was, was a good sound one. So I sat down to sort of make a list of the biggest baddies in the Bible and then figure out what it would look like to, uh, to tell their stories. And so in the book, I use a fictionalized reimagining of their signature moments. So each one has like a, you know, a short fictional story, a retelling of their story because psychologists tell us that fiction is one of the best ways to practice empathy because when you read a fictional story you are figuratively sitting in the other person's head and seeing the world through their eyes and walking in their shoes and so i thought that was an important i, I didn't want this to be merely a mental exercise i wanted it to be an emotional exercise so i use that the fictional retellings and then I, then i have a chapter that's more uh, didactic and something that includes pastoral and personal stories and biblical exegesis and, and these kinds of things, sort of sort of uh, unpacking and building upon the emotional and conceptual groundwork that I lay in the, the fictional chapter. Yeah, it's a really nice effect that you've got in the book that you've got a number of chapters here and each one is, or sections, and each one is kind of divided into two chapters. Uh, the first part around a, a character, so your characters are Cain, Samson, Delilah, Delilah Jezebel, Herod the Great, Herodias, Judas, and with each one of these sections, you've got kind of a creative retelling of their story and then followed up with a, an existential application kind of, kind of 
point about what what's a takeaway that we can have. Uh, one of the things that caught me from this, and let me throw this out to, to both of you um, about why you think this is the case, is JR, you, you write you write this in the in the introduction. You say maybe it's this generation of political corruption and religious sex scandals. Maybe it's the information age giving us access to more sides of more stories than we've ever had. Maybe it's just good storytelling. But when the Joker is more interesting than the Dark Knight, it's worth asking why. Why are we so obsessed with bad guys? Now, JR, you've got an answer here that you kind of go into to telling, and that's kind of part of the hook of the book and, and why you wrote it the way you did. But uh, let's explore that for a little bit. Why is it that that the bad guy, the femme fatale, kind of has this allure in our current cultural setting? That's to both of us, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was um, really waiting to hear what Brandon said. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I'm not sure I, I have an, uh, a concise answer, but, it, but I've made the same observation. And it's interesting to me as well that, like, particularly in, um, like, in long-form television, the anti-hero seems to have emerged even more so than in film. Now, of course, there's still films with anti-heroes, but like something about those longer sustained and more complex narratives seem to make space and, uh, and, and to encapture our imaginations for, um, for these anti-hero characters, whether we're talking about you know, Breaking Bad or The Shield or The Wire or just a variety of recent television shows. And uh, no, JR and I like to nerd out about pop culture. I wonder if he has any any reflections on why that might be is it just the complexity of of the character that attracts us is it that we we see elements of ourselves in those characters i yeah i mean one it is great storytelling right I, you meant brandon mentioned the wire which is like my favorite tv show of all time which is that's yeah. not that's not a hot take right that's like everyone's favorite tv show of all time but uh, <laughs> i mean every character in that show is so complex and you find yourself rooting for all of them uh in ways that are so surprising it, it's it's not unlike game of thrones uh martin just does it more deliberately where he sets you up with some traditional fantasy tropes of heroes and villains and then he just works so swiftly to undermine those as as the story progresses where the people who are heroes, you actually find out it's their commitment to things like honor and uh, integrity that make them unfit to live in the quote unquote real world. And it's uh, these people that you malign as villains so quickly, uh, again, you find out there's a lot more nuance to them than you ever ever considered. And I think, I don't know, like if anyone else is anyone like me or anything like me, uh, I recognize myself in that. Like I am painfully aware of my own inadequacies and the ways in which I fail to be a pure hero. And I think most of us are like that. Like we, we know that we are complex. We know the hidden motivations inside of ourselves and the things that never end up crossing our lips and the behaviors that are never uh, acted upon. And yet, you know, for a long time, right. I think we were able to convince ourselves that there were people that were that good. You know whether that was the the office of the president or our religious leaders or whatever and i mean the 20th century just mercilessly annihilated that again and again and again to the yeah. point that we we think oh wow everyone is just as messed up as us which is not a bad place to start doing theology from 
uh, frankly. But I think that did do a that that did. I mean, we we can't even have a Superman movie these days because <laughs> right. we can't, can't even have a fictional Boy Scout. You know, um, everyone has to be dark and gritty because that's how that's we recognize our own interiority of that. You know, like we are dark and gritty. Yeah. So, so, so let me. So let me in your own journey. Um, sorry, can I tag onto that? I apologize for jumping yeah, in, but in your own journey, then Jr. Um, from a, uh, a Baptist upbringing into the kind of the Wesleyan holiness tradition, like how how do we square that with our our commitments in in our in our denominational tradition to sanctification? uh entire or otherwise and uh and holiness uh especially when you know i i just had a conversation last week with a student about um about this where you know he he cited the kind of classic line that we hear from from a lot of folks in the holiness tradition about um you know being being hesitant to give the impression that the life of holiness is somehow unattainable that we're that we're just always going to be kind of messed up and and uh and sinful and depraved and so how how does that kind of how do you wrestle through that as a holiness pastor and thinker so i've been captivated by the image that jesus gives to nicodemus in john chapter three uh for quite a while and it's at the end of chapter at the end of his his uh i guess it ends up being a lecture with nicodemus towards the end where where he says uh you know all those who do low things uh, stay in darkness that they may not be known. But anyone who does the truth comes into the light that their deeds may be seen, that they, they may glorify their father who is in heaven. And I think that we have this idea of holiness, which is that, which is, which is primarily defined by what we do or do not do. If I do good things, I'm holy. If I do bad things, I'm not holy. And I think that gets us into a lot of trouble because what sanctification is, is, is the work of God in us. And so uh, I think that, I think that we would get a lot further in talking about holiness life. If we are willing to live in the light and allow, um, allow all of the things in us to be exposed to the light so that the work of God in us can be clearly seen. Um, and I think for those of us who are in leadership positions, whether they be in uh, ministry or teaching or whatever, there's this pressure that we don't do that, that we don't be real, that we don't be authentic, that we don't, um, that we don't show how we are overcoming sin by the grace of God and the spirit at work within us. Uh, because again, holiness is about what we do. Um, and and I, what I try to do in my teaching and preaching, and I, I mean, there were there were multiple things in the book that I did not want to write. In fact, when my editor came back with my first round of edits, he said, there are a few chapters in this book where you are really fully present, and then there are several where you're not. Uh, and he said, I know that that's because you don't probably want to talk about where these things intersect your own life, but the chapters where you're present are much, much stronger. And so having to go back in and expose more of the ugliness of myself, uh, the, the things that bring me shame, uh, even on paper, what was, was scary and was painful, but he was right. It made, it made for better news. 
because I was showing like, look, these are, these are the ways in which God has transformed me. And so then again, the, my, the journey of my holiness is not about what I have been able to like do or stop doing. It's more about how God had, what God has done in me. I don't know. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yep. <laughs> let me, let me come at it from another angle, offer another, another vantage point. So uh, I hear, and, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to a certain extent that we are drawn to the anti-hero. We're drawn to the Joker um, in part because uh, there's an authenticity to it. And there's, and it's, it's our, our attempt to be, to be honest with ourselves. I wonder if I can come at it from another vantage point from another perhaps Christian anti-hero, Friedrich Nietzsche, and say, is there a way that we're drawn to the the bad guy, so to speak, yeah. because we're drawn to courage? And uh, and Nietzsche is always, you know, is affirming that people don't do what they want to do because they lack courage. And yet there are some uh, in the anti-hero that at least they have the courage of their convictions and and they're putting those on display. And I wonder if there's a part of that that we are we are simply drawn to that kind of strength and we're drawn to that kind of uh that kind of courage or rather than the, rather than the soft good guy. And that's part of the irony is that, is that most of the, the best good guys are still those who have the courage of their convictions and they act dangerously, right? The, the I think of Batman and others, but they act dangerously and they have that courage, but there's a sense that the, the bad guy is almost always courageous, uh, especially in these ways, because they're willing to, to play out the, the violence. They're willing to play out the, the depravity that they believe in. What do you think? Is that another reason that we're attracted to the bad guy because they have the courage of their convictions? Oh, I like I that. Have, I mean, I, yeah. Yeah. I, I also think, I mean, again, to, to even press on that somewhat more fully, uh, I've, I've become captivated of late by this idea uh, since it is the 10th anniversary of the dark Knight, the greatest superhero film ever conceived or created. Uh, I've been captivated by the reality that, um, the Joker is the only honest person in that entire film. He, he's the only one that, that, that speaks truthfully and does what he wants to do all the time. And uh, Batman, I, I've just, I'm so fascinated. I don't know if anyone, I don't know how many listeners read comics, but the, the current run of Batman by writer Tom King is all about emphasizing Batman's humanity. And uh, as we're recording this, issue 53 has just dropped where uh, Bruce Wayne shares why he is an atheist. It's an incredible issue <laughs> if, if, if you can go get your hands on it. Um, but a lot, a lot of... A lot of the Batman mythology is built on a guy who's not willing to face his demons. Um, rather than confronting his fears, he wraps his fears around himself and goes out and punches the things that hurt him. And uh, there's a childish wish fulfillment that's fun in that. But yeah, to your point, Aaron, I think it's much less honest and at the end of the day, much less courageous than what we see in the villains and if you're looking for some kind of a redemption arc it's 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 actually much less courageous than being willing to sit down and look deeply and honestly inside of ourselves and face those frightful shameful painful places inside of us yeah and i wonder too if um yeah we're just attracted to to people who 
do what they want and and don't care what anybody thinks, <laughs> uh, which maybe gets at uh, some of our depravity as well. Joining us today is J.R. Forresteros and Brandon Hancock. J.R. is the author of Empathy for the Devil. We've been talking about uh, this kind of allure, this kind of being drawn to the bad guy. Let me do a, a bit of a switch here. Uh, sticking with, I mean, the bad guy theme, the bad guy theme is still a whole way through the book, so hard to get away from it. But uh, J.R., you talk about one of the one of the ways that, that you uh, lived out your faith by, by being this kind of, uh, the token Christian, as you described in your in your graduate studies, and when somebody else kind of came in and and threatened that kind of temporal or external identity, uh, whenever they threatened that, that you had those feelings of je- jealousy, envy, you know, concern uh, that your own identity may be threatened. Uh, you write this: you say grounding our identity our identities in anything temporal is dangerous because precisely because our lives are fleeting. And there's there's a kind of sense of image management in that, right? That we want to pro, we want to project an identity that is alluring and that is attractive to other people, so that so that we have a sense of importance. And and when that identity is threatened because somebody else maybe fits the bill, fits the image a little bit better than we do, then it can be very disconcerting. It can be very uh, uh, disarming, um, alarming for us. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Um, why was it why was it important for for you to delve into this sense of of uh, finding an identity in someone or something that was more real rather than the label of the the token Christian uh, in the in the in your graduate studies. Yeah, well, part of that cuts just right to the core of who I am. I'm I'm a performer at, uh, by nature. If any, anyone knows Enneagram, I'm I'm a three, and so like that's like that's just what threes do, right? They uh, we 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 put on a show and we we create ourselves as who we think the person on the other side of the relationship wants us to be so that we can gain their approval. And in this, again, uh, as I shared earlier, my graduate program was secular, is non-confessional. And so there was, there was a whole spectrum of belief uh, from, from belief in several other different world religions to, uh, to atheism, to agnosticism, to some other kinds of Christianity. But I, I was the only evangelical. And uh, it, it was a, it was a strange it was a strange sort of jarring movement for me to go from a very conservative private Southern Baptist University to Mizzou, where I went from being like the the flaming liberal kid to the like crazy conservative kid in a month, you know, without changing anything I believed just because of the circles I was running in. And there was so I had so much anxiety about being able to be good enough. I mean, in my my undergraduate school was like seventeen hundred total undergraduate enrollment. Mizzou at the time was like twenty five thousand students. Uh, I remember the first day of our our classes. I met two of the guys who were in my program, and we were all talking about what we were going to learn in this first class. And they started saying like, oh yeah, you know, we're probably going to read Marx and oh yeah, Marx, of course. And Freud. Oh yeah. Well, of course, Freud and, you know, Geertz and, and they just kept throwing out all these. And I was like, I knew who Karl Marx was. And I think I probably knew his quote about religion being the opiate of the masses. I didn't know Freud said anything about religion and I didn't even know any of the other names they threw out. And so I immediately felt so insecure and so out of my depth and uh, afraid. 
that I wasn't going to be able to hack it, that I had made a terrible decision about doing this instead of going to a seminary where I could still be in the Jesus bubble. Uh, and, uh, and then as soon as they sort of located me as like the token Christian guy, like the evangelical kid that, that gave me, it was okay that I didn't know some of the things I didn't know because I had gone to a private Christian school. It was okay that I had some of the beliefs I had because, well, of course, what do you expect from someone like that? And it just, it, it like gave me a location in the program. Uh, and, and it gave me a sense of security because now there was a map of how I was to relate to everyone else. Um, What's silly about that is that, uh, as I share in the book, you know, when there, when the next year another guy who came from a private Christian school in the northeast corner of the state instead of the southwest corner of the state showed up, and he had a lot of the same background and beliefs that I had, instead of seeing him as an ally, I saw him as a threat because I had this like scarcity mentality that there, you know, there's only room in the web for one person in this little node. And uh, a guy who, not to spoil the end of that chapter, but a guy who is now one of my best friends and one of my great ministry partners, uh, I, it took me like a year to come around to him because I was so threatened. And our friendship now, gosh, I let's see, it's been more than a decade since I finished that program. So more than a decade since I befriended him. That program ended after three total years. And I... I just try to think about how foolish it is for me to have clung to that identity that was so fleeting. I mean, in this case, even more fleeting than most of our identities, right? Like I've been a son for a lot longer than three years. I've been a husband for a lot longer than three years. I've been a pastor for a lot longer than three years. Um, and we cling to those identities too. But this one that I was, this particular one that I was clinging to that was engendering such a sense of distrust and hatred towards this guy who had done nothing to warrant that other than show up uh, the idea that I would sacrifice a lifelong brotherhood with him for something so fleeting is frightening to me, you know, and it really in the wake of that was a reality check for how often I get in my own way when it comes to the people that God is bringing into my life to, uh, to minister to me and to be ministered to by me. So let me, let me put this question to both of you. You, you both are pastors um, and you both have, have either gone through this or expect seen it, or maybe both, but let's say we've got people listening in and JR, you've just kind of described an aspect at least of the story of, of the, the adolescent or the young adult in their church where they are now faced with, with the question of the stability of their faith. Is there, is their faith as stable as they thought it was, or is their faith as stable as they think that they've been taught it is. And now maybe through education, maybe through life experience, maybe through uh, a, a deep relationship uh, that's forming, who knows. But now through whatever this new input is, suddenly the faith starts to feel pretty unstable, right? And and life starts to feel kind of destabilized with that. Uh, it's a question to both of you. Um, we've got a, we've got pastors that are, are helping some of their, their church members through that very spot in life, how would you counsel them? How would you counsel the pastor to, to offer support? Uh, what role does empathy play as they are shepherding people through that, that really difficult process of, of uh, faith development? Shall I start? Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'm not as uh, active in my pastoral 
role these days since I'm teaching full time as, as JR is serving a local church, but, uh, but I still, still do serve my local church as a worship pastor and, and, uh, try to take a pastoral attitude towards my students as well. Some of whom, despite the fact that they're pastors and seminarians have those dark night of the soul moments as well. And, uh, so I think just right in line with the theme of JR's book and his work, um, a lot of times I just find myself sharing my own story as well and trying to identify those points of connection uh, and where I can empathize with them and where they can maybe see in me somebody who's been down some of those same roads of, of doubt and of struggle and has, has come through it and who may continue, you know, continues to um, ask a lot of questions. Um, I try to kind of deconstruct the notion that, that doubt is the, is the antithesis of faith or the enemy of faith and rather, uh, frame it as the kind of the condition of possibility from which faith emerges. The opposite of faith is, is more accurately something like knowledge or certainty, not, not doubt, but it's only from a place of uncertainty and, and, uh, and not knowing that we begin to exercise and, and flex our faith muscles. And so um, I know that that insight for me was really huge in, in my own journey. And so sharing that with others um, is something that I, that I find myself doing a lot. And yeah, just sharing my own experiences. Yeah, I think that's so key. Um, I, I encounter so many folks, both inside and outside the church, who have asked a legitimate question um, and then have been told, uh, either, sometimes they're told something like, well, we don't ask questions, just believe. That that happens more often than I can believe is even possible in 2018 still. Um, but they're often also just given some kind of dismissive pat answer, like just have faith or I'll pray for you or something like that. And and again, what's missing is as what Brandon pointed out is empathy. Um, hopefully as a pastor, you are trying to ask all of the hard questions, maybe not all at once. Sure. I get that. But hopefully you're trying to be in a position where there is not a difficult question that a congregant has raised to you that you've not thought of before. Now it does still happen, uh, obviously. Uh, and that I think can sometimes feel threatening. I think that's sometimes why we respond with a pat answer is just to dismiss or brush that off. But um, I would say if you can start with the question, what what's the question that's under this question? Typically, if someone comes to you and says, well, I'm not sure about creationism versus evolution, it's unlikely that they were just like walking down the street and that thought popped into their head apropos of nothing. Uh, there's almost always some deeper issue that's going on there that's raised that question for them. And I think if you can begin there and then work backwards, that's really good. And uh, if you can pr particularly for, I think, younger believers, uh, don't position yourself as a person whose job it is to squish their doubt and take away all of their questions, but more as, as a conversational partner who can lead them down that path 
um, that you've hopefully also gone down before that. So say, man, I think that, well, here, I'll share an uh, example. Uh, uh, you know, a congregant uh, recently reached out to me and, and, and asked if he was too harsh with someone on Twitter. And I went and looked and mm, he probably said some things I wouldn't have said. Um, but I didn't also just want to say like, well, you shouldn't use this kind of language. And here's, here's a list that I've created of language you should never, never use. And, and then a handy flow chart of these other questionable words and when to use them. Like that's just legalism. So instead I just, I just kept asking him questions about, well, why did you feel that these were the right words to use? And what, well, you know, what was at stake in this conversation? And, and yes, you're right. Jesus did use harsh language sometimes with people. So when, when did he do that? And what did he say? You know, and I, I tried more to, engage him in that way to try to again understand where he was coming from uh and let him draw his own conclusions uh rather than again me just sort of trying to stamp out and use a you know give him a give him the quote-unquote right answer now the only pushback i would have is that a good flow chart is invaluable <laughs> should never ever yeah. be, be yeah. overlooked uh joining us today is jr foresteros and our very own wesley seminary's brandon hancock uh, i'd love to send you to jr's website for our listeners interested in more about jr he has got a number of resources uh for you there sermons podcasts uh, blogs he does a weekly newsletter uh it is jrforesteros.com jrforesteros.com and you can find the correct spelling of jr's name on our on the podcast title to make sure that you get that incorrectly but a number of resources there brandon i want to i want to as we start to wrap things up i want to kind of give you the last uh maybe the, the last way to ask a, a question here you've gone through this book you were able to endorse the book so you're familiar with it um if you were, to, if there was one thing that you would you would want our listeners to to take away from the book, or if there's there's one angle of questions that you'd like for for Jr. to present from the book, uh, what would those be? What's the what's the last thing that you'd like to say, man? Empathy for the devil. They definitely have to hear this. Yeah. Well, thanks, uh, and thanks for having me on, and and having my friend on, and giving us a chance to hang out, Aaron. And um, I'll I'll just make a comment, and then I'm going to kick a I'll kick a question to Jr. and kind of let him take it home. Um, you know, one of the things that I, uh, I, I want to affirm something JR said earlier, which is that some of the most compelling, he was quoting an editor, but one of the most compelling, I think, uh, features of the book are these moments where he uh, tells some of his own personal stories um, and allows us to enter into those, those kind of true stories from, from real life. Uh, but I also love the way that he, he pairs those with these um, imaginative kind of literary retellings of, uh, of biblical stories that are, you know, in many cases familiar, although not all of them. He, I certainly uh, learned a lot as I read the book uh, from some of his uh, exegetical work that informed uh, the way that he retells some of those, those biblical villain stories. Um, but I, I'm just struck throughout my entire reading of the book and continue to be struck even as I, as I teach and as I pastor uh, at the importance of, of reading novels and of engaging fiction uh, in general. I know that uh, Aaron, you share this uh, commitment and conviction with me and use some novels in some of the courses that you teach. And I've started to try to find ways to do that as well, particularly for pastors who trade in story and who, uh, who need to become uh, both good storytellers and people of 
of imagination who uh, can kind of hopefully and prosthetically uh, view the world differently. And I think reading novels and entering into fictional worlds uh, helps us do that. Um, I read a, a book during my grad school days, JR, uh, written by a New Testament professor at the University of Edinburgh. I think he's passed on now. His name's Douglas Templeton. And the title of the book is uh, is kind of provocative. He he titles the book "The New Testament as True Fiction," and um, he yeah, and he he talks in that book. One of the quotes that just comes to mind for me right now, and I might get it a little bit wrong, but but he basically makes the case that that fiction is not opposed to fact. Uh, it's not the opposite of fact. It's that fiction uh, can contain both fact and truth. In fact. Um, and so that's the, the power of fiction. He's kind of, he's not de, uh, uh, demoting <laughs> uh, scripture to the status of fiction, but rather elevating the status of fiction to this way of kind of imaginatively telling stories that, uh, that can be, that can contain truth and fact. And so uh, I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that, uh, particularly as it relates to the way that you've you've taken these stories that we believe to be true from the Bible, but in many ways fictionalized them, I would say, uh, in the best of ways, and, uh, and, and invited us to enter into those, those fictional worlds through you know, what, what Coleridge calls the suspension of disbelief that constitutes poetic faith. That's, there's part of that quote that we leave out a lot of times, that uh, we enter into these worlds through our willing suspension of disbelief that constitutes poetic faith. And so how do you kind of make sense of um, the relationship between the biblical narrative and fiction and truth and, uh, and what you're kind of inviting us to do as we read your book? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, like straight out of the box, I think we don't give enough attention to the fact that Jesus made up stories to prove points. Right. You know, uh, I, I don't know very many people who think that there was a actual good Samaritan, right? Or when Jesus says a man had two sons, uh, that, you know, that there was some guy in over in the corner that was like, yep, that was me. Like that, no, he's, when people say, right, tell right. us what the kingdom of God is like, and he says the kingdom of God is like, and then starts telling a story that these these were fictions, um, and, and that there's nothing, as you said, that's not to, that's not to devalue the way Jesus taught. It's probably to elevate what we understand story to be and the power of story. Um, I think too, we don't give enough attention to the fact that the gospels, uh, would probably get F's if they were presented in history classes today. Um, you know, we have multiple, if you just compare Mark and Matthew, for instance, there are multiple places where Matthew changes the details of the story from Mark or puts things in different order or adds things. Uh, by the time you get over to the Gospel of John, not only is there like a whole mess of different material that's in none of the other Gospels, but the order of things has been changed as near as we can tell to, uh, to communicate John's agenda. Uh, that he has a particular theological picture of Jesus he wants to communicate. And for him, that trumps historical uh, timeline. Right. And I don't, I don't know, again, there was a time in my life and in my faith where that would have deeply bothered me because of the, because of the way I was taught what scripture is. 
um that it's you know that it, it that again it's like it's it's a historical document i mean i was told on multiple occasions if you doubt x then you doubt the whole thing these kinds of things and uh i love pete ends is one of my favorite bible scholars uh these days because he he insists repeatedly that we work really hard to love the bible that god gave us not the bible we wish god had given us uh and, and so <laughs> yeah. when, when we find the bible behaving badly badly meaning not in the way that we wish it would uh we attend to that and we say well what do we have to learn from what scripture is doing here um and so as far as how that connects to my take on uh what i'm what i'm trying to do uh i see the scriptures as an invitation into the imagination of God. And when I say imagination, I mean the way that God sees how things could be and ought to be. And so again, can't tell you how many times growing up with Cain and Abel, you know, it was like, let's review. You've got Adam and Eve, you've got Cain and Abel, and then Cain kills Abel. And then Cain takes his wife, excuse me, what? Like, where did she come from? And when we would ask these things, we would either be given some weird answer that's not in the Bible, like, well, it's his sister and they must have had other kids. Or we were just told, well, the Bible doesn't tell us, so we can't, we can't know. And I love that uh, one of the, I mean, one of the big things I've learned from Jewish interpreters is that they see these holes in the biblical stories, uh, not as mistakes or as accidents, but as invitations to enter into the story and to, to imaginatively fill those with meaning. Uh, and, and so that's very much what yeah, I tried yeah. to do with my stories was uh, not in any way write something that would be trying to replace scripture for people as though that were even possible. Um, but something that would hopefully, uh, I mean, obviously all of these are products of my imagination, my experience interacting with these texts. Uh, so in no way do I hold them as an authoritative guide to anything except me. <laughs> like what's going on in my head as I read these stories. Um, but but I, I hope that they get people excited about uh, taking scripture seriously enough to imagine themselves into the text as well. Because I think when we do that, when we imaginatively put ourselves into the scriptures, we, what we're actually doing is, is entering into God's reality and beginning to see not only the world of scripture, but our own world uh, in a, in a different way, in a way that's more full of possibility uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know. Does that does that get at where, where your question? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, thanks. Can I can I ask ask you one more favor for our listeners and, and for yeah. me as much as anything else? Uh, from the last like let's say six months, um, if uh, a book recommendation and a movie recommendation. Okay. Uh, let's see here. I mean, I just saw Black Klansman and it was incredible. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that's that's super 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 good. Uh, and I think it's I think it's important too in in a way. Um, I mean, I don't want to over spiritualize it, but it does deal with it does deal with how we imagine race and our interactions with each other. So I think that's important. Uh, and then, um, you know. <laughs> Okay, I'm just gonna do this. I'm sorry if it's if it's super weird, but there's this great sci-fi novel called Children of Time by an author named Adrian Tchaikovsky, and 
the premise of the book is that humans have started to terraform other planets. And one of the ways they do that is they, they send a ship full of primates with a nanovirus that's designed to accelerate evolution. So that by the time humans arrive, there's this like subservient semi-sentient race of primates evolved there that can help them settle. And on this one particular, I know what could go wrong, right? So on, on this one particular planet, the ship full of primates crashes and is destroyed. And so the, the nanovirus doesn't have anything to uplift. So it targets spiders. And so, so the whole book is what happens when spiders become sentient and develop culture and technology and civilization. And then they, they and humanity encounter each other. Um, it's, it's incredible. It's all about empathy. I mean, the whole thing is all about, can we <laughs> stare into the face of something monstrous and love it? Yeah. And the spiders are asking that question of the humans and the humans are asking that question of the spiders. It's, it's a really great book. Uh, just really fun, really cool. Um, so yeah, yeah, that, of time. It's the most boring title and cover you can imagine. But it's a great book, <laughs> Children of Time by Adrian Tchaikovsky. Uh, super fun book, super good read. Uh, yeah, really, really enjoyed it. The way you're describing it kind of sounds like an adult version of Charlotte's Web. Uh, yeah, <laughs> in the way that you really come to care about Charlotte, yes. Uh, but imagine that Charlotte was like four feet long and they had giant spider cities built in forests. <laughs> Yeah. Joining us today has been J.R. Foresteros. I've had some laughs. I hope uh, our listeners have as well. Thank you, J.R. Thank you for thank you, Brandon, for joining us today. Uh, J.R. had the line of uh, an imaginative entry into scripture. And I think that's a great way to describe empathy for the devil uh, published by IVP. You can find it at uh, Christian bookstores. You can find it online. Be sure to check out JR's website, jrforesteros.com for more resources, podcasts, newsletters, and things of the sort. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us today. Thank you. It's been an honor. And we hope that our listeners will take the opportunity to uh, access other resources from the Wesley Seminary podcast as well by checking out other podcasts and by exploring uh, Wesley Seminary as a potential institution for you in your theological education or in your Christian enrichment. Thanks so much and have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.